Play ball. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. If you've never listened before, the show touches on a lot of different topics. We often focus on analytics or defense, but we're always trying to view the game in a different way, and we try to entertain as we can as well. We hope you're doing well wherever you are and that this show can provide a respite from all the things we're dealing with related to the coronavirus. No monologue on this episode. We'll go right to our guest. Keith Law is a senior baseball writer at The Athletic and the author of The Inside Game. He's from William Morrow and will be available for purchase on April 21st, wherever you buy your books. Keith has also previously worked at ESPN and for the Toronto Blue Jays, where he was a special assistant to the GM. Let me preface by saying that I have a very comprehensive baseball book collection. This book is unique. It's a book about decisions and biases and the interplay between them. And it's a book that makes you think about how you think. Keith, what's the biggest thing you'd want someone to get from this book? I I always describe the book in two different ways. It's either a baseball book that might teach you something about cognitive psychology. So if you don't know anything about all these biases, this is, I hope, a fun way to learn about them. Or if you already know about recency bias, outcome bias, hindsight bias, things like that, then hopefully this will shine some light for you on some interesting baseball decisions, usually bad decisions, from throughout the history of the game. I go way back to the 40s, a little more focus on some more contemporary events, things people remember that maybe weren't described the right way when people tried to say, you know, what was Grady Little thinking, for example, when he left Pedro Martinez in? I try to explain that as not so much a failure of Grady Little, but just, hey, we all suffer from status quo bias, and that can affect our decision-making. What inspired you to write a book like this? I had a good response to Smart Baseball. Publisher was happy. They had wanted me to write another book, but they also made it clear they wanted my next book to be something baseball. I, on the other hand, did not want to write a second straight baseball book. It's also what I do for my day job. Um, One of the big reasons I write about lots of non-baseball things as a freelancer just on my own site is that it's a change of pace. And so to have a full-time baseball job and then write another baseball book was like, okay, no, I I need something different. And so this was a way to kind of blend baseball with something totally different and something that's an interest of mine, genuine interest of mine, ties, I have a little bit of a business background with an MBA and worked for consulting firms, did a lot of that. Something else I can maybe speak to kind of intelligently, I hope so at least. Um, And I do hope that Maybe this allows me to pivot and write something that's not baseball at all down the road. I have no idea what that would be at this point, <laughs> but um, I, I feel like I should be, right? Aren't we all supposed to be writing our great novels at this point while yes, we're in quarantine? We it's not time. working out. Yeah, it's not working out at all. My daughter and my two soon-to-be stepdaughters here, you know, trying to do homeschooling with them and work, and my partner is also trying to work. Like, There's no novel writing happening. <laughs> but you do have this, the inside game. All right, I'm about 150 pages in. When I get to the end, what would you like me to be thinking about saying about this book? Hopefully, it'll, you'll, you'll feel like for yourself, you'll think about baseball decisions differently. That the next time you see something you don't understand, a trade, an in-game tactic, whatever it might be, you'll stop and think, oh, that might be a written example of XYZ bias. Or even better, that you're doing it in your own life. Uh, you know, I think in, we're in an election year, obviously. I have fairly strong opinions on, uh, you know, the job that the current administration is doing. And so when you're going to the ballot box, when it, whether you've got primaries coming up, local elections, the presidential election, also thinking about the way you're thinking about the issues, right? We get fed a lot of information. It's not necessarily all clear, not even necessarily all accurate 
trying to think through that and make decisions like that. Make major financial decisions in your life is another example. We're all prey to these biases. doesn't matter how smart you are, how experienced you are in the field. Everyone can fall prey to these because it's just wired into our brains from thousands and thousands of years of evolution. Maybe you stop and think differently. Okay, how can I approach this decision or this question a different way so that I'm not as subject to these biases that automatically crop up? I want to take a specific example because I think that's going to help explain exactly what this book is. Chapter five, for every Clayton Kershaw, there are 10 Casey Kikers, case rate (laughs) neglect and why it's still a bad idea to draft high school pitchers in the first round. I feel like that's an easy one for us to wrap our our heads around. Uh, What were you trying to accomplish by writing that? That is based on something I have often heard within the industry from scouts and even executives. I mean, these are people, they're friends of mine. I respect them quite a bit. But you know, if you want to have a Clayton Kershaw, you got to be willing to take high school pitchers in the first round. Comes up also with Madison Bumgarner. Both guys were selected in the top 10 overall picks of their respective drafts. I think that's 06 and 07. And obviously, both guys worked out spectacularly. You could probably slice it a little more thinly and say, well, each guy was the top high school lefty in his draft. You still want to take that guy pretty high. I chose to instead take a more macro view and look at what's the the base rate of high school pitchers taken in the first round. In other words, these guys, you know, the Kershaws and the Bumgarners and the Casey Kikers, they're all high school pitchers, right? We can cluster all of those two guys together and say, well, how do they do? Well, it turns out not that well. If you just divide all draft prospects into the four categories, college hitters, college pitchers, high school hitters, high school pitchers, one of those things is not like the others, and that is high school pitchers. They have worse success rates across the board, no matter how you judge them. And that says to me, then when you look at how often teams take those high school pitchers in the first round, particularly high in the first round, it says to me, you know what? We're doing this wrong. We actually shouldn't see that many high school pitchers selected in the first round. The correct number is not zero, but it's not where it's been. I found it interesting to be writing this book last year which was the worst showing for high school pitchers in the first round in at least 20 years. I think it was the second latest. Quinn Priester was the first high school pitcher taken. I think he was 18th overall. I might be off by a pick. That was the second latest ever for the first high school pitcher to be selected. Now, I'm curious if that's a fluke or our team starting to wise up and say, you know, maybe we don't need to take the high school pitchers in the first round. Maybe we can take them with our second pick and pay them more, but not give up the opportunity cost of a first round pick where there might be a good college player with a higher floor or a good high school position player who has more ceiling, just more probability because hitters don't get hurt as often as pitchers do. I feel like if one of the themes throughout the book, and it pretty much comes through in every chapter, uh, it kind of screams out at you, and it's applicable again to real-life situations. Study the data. Yeah. The data's yes. there. And, and I feel like that's a message. And you were talking politics before. I mentioned this with, with Jared Diamond, our last guest. Dr. Fauci, uh, when he articulates how he's trying to get his message across, he talks about the idea of consistent messaging. You have to hammer home the same point. And, and hammer home your points and really just be repetition will, will make a big difference and an impact. Um, I feel like that's that a lot of that is echoed throughout this book. Um, just, I, I think it, it's that simple, right? Just look at the data. Look at the data. It's two, it is, and that is two messages in one, right? One is look at the data, which, which assumes or presumes that you have the data. It, it, the second message then is if you don't go get it. And this wasn't a good enough example necessarily to make the book, but when I first joined the Blue Jays, and really most of my tenure there, I probably spent more of my working hours getting the data than I did actually doing anything with the data, because at that point, it was just harder to come by. Um, you know, Colleges might individually post 
their uh, players' performance stats, and I mean, this is the basic stuff. This is pre-exit velocity because I'm old. But we would, I ended up writing quite a bit of code to just get all that data and put it into a usable form. A lot of it was just getting stuff into Excel so I could sort and print or put or send leaderboards to other people involved in the draft process. You know, today that's sort of laughable, right? It's easy to find that stuff, and if you can't, if it's not free online, there are plenty of third parties who will sell that data to you for a pretty nominal fee. But at that point. It was just, we're making this decision in the draft entirely based on subjective data from scouts, which I think is real data, uh, but let's get more. Why wouldn't we get the objective data? We just had to gather it and inject that into the process and see then, did it improve our decision-making? And I think it did, although what we were then trumped by a larger trend, which is other teams who were doing the same thing, and then suddenly it got a lot harder. One other uh, specific subject from the book that I really enjoyed uh, because I had personal experience in this, first impressions and the power of them. When I started at ESPN, I remember I had a conversation with my boss in the first week of my job there. 15 years later at my goodbye party, Mm -hmm. he's quoting from the things that happened to me in my first week at ESPN. And I was like, boy... That, that first impression lived with him for 15 years. Was I all right? Did I do everything all right? <laughs> but in the book, you get into um, why that happens and the power of the first impression and the power of the most recent thing that happened. Um, just can you, can you give a, an overview of that for people that are interested? Right, and this, that is based also on some memory studies where they'll give subjects, for example, a list of things to remember, a list of numbers or names or objects. And they find that, and then they're asked after a few minutes, okay, give the list back to me. And subjects do best with the first item in the list and the last item in the list. And those are two related biases. The technical names are primacy bias. The first thing you learn about something will loom as more important. You're more likely to remember it, and that makes it seem more important. Recency bias is the same exact thing, but it's for the last thing you heard, the most recent thing you saw, the last time you scouted a player. There's no question. I am. I absolutely see those biases at work in my own work on writing about players that I've seen personally. So you think about it as sort of like a U-shaped curve, right? The first thing you remember is really strong, and then the and the memory and then the import drops. There's some bottom somewhere in the middle of the list of observations or whatever, and it comes back up. And the last thing you, hey, this guy went four for four last time I saw him, and he smoked that ball in the second inning, and that that. You have to actively work to overcome that because how could that not loom larger? It's the last thing you saw. Right, exactly. And, and I think that, 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 that that's a good example within the book of something that's an everyday life mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing, certainly. Um, all right, specific to our company and the business that our company's in, what biases become apparent when you're trying to evaluate defense and what can people do to avoid being the victim of them? I think the number one bias that... Um, that affects people when evaluating defense. And when I say people, I mean everybody, fans all the way up to scouts and executives, coaches, everyone is prey to this. Uh, it is essentially availability bias, um, which is the, the highlight play, right? That we, when you see a guy make what appears to be a very difficult play, and I say appears to be because as you know well, sometimes a play appears to be difficult, but it wasn't actually that difficult. The fielder maybe was not positioned correctly or got a bad jump. And therefore, the play at the end looks like it was harder than it was. But also, it's just those are the things that jump out in our memory, right? If I name a random big leaguer and ask you what you think of his defense, you can't look at the data. 
your brain is going to process and say, all right, what, what do I know about this player? Where have I seen him? And if you've seen a bunch of highlight plays from that, made by that particular fielder, that's going to jump out and you're going to say, yeah, he's pretty good. But we know from working with the data that that's not necessarily a good measure of defense. And often players can sort of, one, they can just sort of not look as good because they make those plays look easy. You know, always think of Andrew Jones, right? Andrew Jones just, you'd look up and then you'd look down and he was already under it. Well, that's not very flashy, but he sure as heck caught everything, and the data bear this out also. Um, and then also there's the issue of the, um, I, you know, dating myself, but I always think of the Jose Valentin problem where he would get to so many balls in play, he'd make a ton of errors. But it's because he was reaching balls that a lot of, others, a lot of other fielders just never even got to in the first place. That's availability bias maybe in the wrong direction, right? You're thinking worse of him because you remember seeing him muff a bunch of plays, when in actuality, it's because, no, the exceptional thing is that he got to that ground ball in the first place. So that's a hard one to overcome because you're not going to see or necessarily even think about uh, a player making routine plays in a game right. that you happen – or where you watched a guy 12 times a year instead of 162, you don't necessarily get the, the full impression uh, of that. Is, is there a what, – what can someone do to overcome it? So this even came up in a ridiculous Twitter thread the other day where a beat writer who's covered Cleveland, the team in Cleveland, who shall not be named, was making extremely subjective uh, and evidence-free arguments that Omar Vizquel was the best fielding shortstop in history. No, he wasn't. And that he belongs in the Hall of Fame. No, he doesn't. (laughs) Um, But you could absolutely see the bias, in addition to just him being a fan, obviously a fan of the team and the player, you could see the bias at work because he simply seen Vizquel a lot more. And so he probably saw more highlight plays from Vizquel. Vizquel was an above-average defensive shortstop. I'm not disputing that. The question is whether he was so elite that we should be putting him in the Hall of Fame. And I pointed out that in this case, you know, back to what you said earlier, you look at the data. We have data. We, we can tell you how many balls in play Ozzie Smith got to versus Omar Vizquel. They were nearly contemporaries. There were some slight differences in when they played and where they played. But Smith got to so many more balls in play. He actually got to more balls in play, had more total chances, despite playing less. And so we know those two weren't close. I also think the subjective observations happen to bear that out. We saw a lot of Smith, but mm-hmm. what if your job required you to see Vizquel 150 times a year? And you, I mean, heck, at the time, you might, Ozzy's peak, uh, you might not have seen him at all, right? Because there was no interleague play. You'd see him on TV every once in a while, and that was about it. Game so of the week. Course, right. And, and hopefully they made the playoffs, and you got to see a few things there. It's funny right. if you... If all you ever saw of Ozzie Smith was the playoffs, you might remember the home run he hit off Tom Needenfewer. Right. You're like, hey, this guy's got a pretty good stick right now. It's like one, <laughs> like one home run every three years or something. It's not right, actually him. Exactly. It sure stands out. All right. So, so what are the biggest challenges in coming up with the solutions to the problems? Because you, you certainly point out a lot of the, the problems in here. And in each chapter, you do seem to get into a solution. But in each case, I remember saying, well, boy, that's going to be hard for, for people. To yeah. Do. I was trying not to be too facile when, when getting to solutions. My editor was sort of pushing. He's like, you need the so what, right? The chapter has to end and say, well, what, so, so what do I do about this? And the, you know, the easy answer is just look at the data. The hard answer is, well, you may not have that data and you may not know what those data actually look like. That's the other thing too. I might be able to state the problem, but then figuring out what information, and I said, when I say data, I don't even just mean numbers. Like I, I said earlier, I would consider the information in scouting reports to be data. It's just data of a different stripe, but it is data. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to R&D directors with baseball teams who say the same thing. That's data. We want that data. We just understand that that data needs to then be supplemented with and possibly contrasted with 
hard data on performance or on you know, the sort of underlying characteristics of performance that we get from things like the TrackMan system. But I think it is a, a, an entire process. If you're a manager in a company trying to make a decision and you're worried about one or more of these biases, then the, it should be, all right, well, let's phrase the question and figure out what, what information we know we have available that's pertinent. Think about which ones of these biases, one or more of these biases might come into play and then think a second time, well, is there additional information we should be gathering or that we might have already that would help us avoid these biases? Are we looking too much at the most recent data, for example? I think that's the easiest one to understand, right? The way to avoid recency bias is to get older data, older observations, older information, whatever it is. And then you shift the question from, you know, what do I do just based on this most recent information to how much do I weight the most recent observations against observations that might be a little older? If you want to project what a player is going to do next year, the first thing you do is what he did last, look at what he did last year. But you can actually do better if you also consider what he did the year before that and a little bit of what the year he did before that was. And I spoke to a couple of R&D directors, R&D types analysts uh, for the book about that specifically. And they gave different but similar answers in a similar vein, at least about sort of calculating those individual weights to try to get the optimal projection. But it all involved using older data than you might ordinarily want to or think about using. 20 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now, where do you see baseball getting better in terms of decision-making? I actually think the biggest thing that'll happen is not so much on the data side, but on the people side, that baseball is still uh, an extremely homogenous sport when you look at front offices and from scouting staffs on up. This is a sport that is utterly dominated by white men. And now it's kind of split between white men as sort of two different backgrounds, the baseball lifer types, uh, many of whom were my mentors or have become good friends of mine and have taught me a lot about scouting over the years. And now there are folks who have backgrounds similar to me, but are seemingly all younger than I am, who are, you know, went to sort of elite colleges, didn't play as much growing up, or maybe played up through high school or something and pursued a career in baseball because we just had such interest in the sport as opposed to because we played you know, maybe didn't make the majors and now transitioned into a scouting or a player development role. Diversity, there's a lot of evidence that diversity in teams leads to greater creativity and better decision making. And over time, this will happen. We will see increasing, uh, an increasing percentage of people of color in front offices. We will see more women appearing in front offices. As that happens, and it should happen anyway, just from a pure diversity standpoint, I think diversity is a value in and of itself. By the way, it also leads to better results. There's quite a bit of evidence in the business world on that. And we lag behind as an industry. We lag behind most industries. I think most sports do, but I know baseball in particular does on multiple dimensions. That will change. That will inevitably change. It's just going to take time. It's going to be slow. Um, last, last book question before I have a couple of other things. Do you have a favorite chapter? Oh, that is a really good question. You know, the one I enjoyed doing the most was the one on the draft on high school pitchers in the first round. There are two chapters that really touch on the draft. That one was super fun because it's a question that's sort of rolled around in my mind forever. And it's always been, well, high school pitchers are so risky. You shouldn't take them, but you got to take them because you can't get a Kershaw or a Bumgarner otherwise. There's another chapter too, where I, I, I believe it's also the um, uh, under primacy bias, although it comes at, like a couple of biases come into play on this, which is the way that if a player is a first rounder, once a first rounder, always a first rounder. He'll always get extra chances and extra consideration because he used to be a first rounder. It's this assumption that the label just makes him good. And then I started looking at the data to see, well, do those players just get more opportunities than players taken even in the second round? And the effect was there, but weaker than I thought. 
And that was interesting because I lear- actually learned something. I would have said I thought the value of the label of first rounder attached to a player was more powerful in player development decisions than it actually appears to be. I still think it's true in trades, but I couldn't figure out how to test that. <laughs> well, I was going to say that um, it's another way of first impression, yeah. first, first round. Hang off. All right, shifting gears, and I think we can tie this back tangentially to <laughs> what we're talking about here. You wrote an article for The Athletic the other day about Earl Weaver baseball. I liked Earl Weaver. I loved Micro League. I yep. loved Diamond Mine. I think the games now are so advanced, it's hard to wrap your head around them. What did you like best about Earl Weaver? Earl Weaver was the first. I'm 46, for listeners who don't yep. know me or my work. So I'm 46. I graduated from high school in 1990. Um, and I actually had my dad was an electrical engineer until he retired. And so we had our first computer of any sort in the house. It was a TI-86, I think. And I was, it was probably about 1979, 1980. I remember a football game that as far as I can tell had no name. It was just called football. <laughs> um, and it is still to this day how I know what certain plays are. Like I did not a prevent defense or a screen, and a screen writes the best, best play against the blitz. And that's 40 years ago. And I still remember this. And so there, was, there were always computers around, and my dad would always get a few interesting games. And he's a sports ball fan, just like I am. And I tried a bunch of those games, a bunch of those uh, baseball games. I played micro league. I loved micro league. I loved hardball. I would try anything baseball. We had a PC, a really low-powered by today's standards PC, but I got a copy of Earl Weaver baseball, and I was completely hooked because the stats seemed to matter. Because you could look at what a player's stats were and you could get the GM disc or the commissioner disc and then enter player stats. And it affected how they played. You could see the connection. It was not just that this was a record of what he compiled, but it was, this is also a way to try to better predict what he's going to do. That made a ton of sense to me. And um, there were so many more things I could do. Uh, it, it, so there was so much more to think about when playing a game like that. I found that utterly intoxicating. My friend John and I, Entered. We picked All Star. We picked opened the baseball encyclopedia at almost a random year, 1949. Picked All Star teams off of that and just played the hell out of them for months and months <laughs> and months. And it was great. It was great because then you'd start to because it also compiled the stats too, so you could sort of see storylines. Or hey, this player's playing a little better than his stats said he would. Well, you know, it's kind of just random, but it's still fun. Yep. Uh, I want so I want to take that and I want to tie this back to something. I had a college football offensive coordinator tell me that every Friday night before a game, he plugged his team's playbook into John Madden football and he mm. would try to simulate action so that he could see things that might happen from the perspective of his players since he wasn't going to be on the field. He had a quarterback at the time who was very distinct. He was a running quarterback like a Kaepernick type in a league where no one really could match that. So he could put Kaepernick on the field and essentially simulate his quarterback. He wanted to see how defenses reacted to all Mm -hmm. the different things he tried. Then I listened to a podcast last night. Gabe Kapler's talking about playing uh, one of the the current video games just to practice situations in his head. And I'm wondering, as the coach said to me, if the pilot who flies the plane is going to go through a simulator, why am I not going through a simulator? And this is the best thing that I've got in terms of a simulator. So why aren't more coaches, managers, GMs doing this sort of thing? That is an excellent question. I remember it was actually, I think Bill James said everyone, every new major league manager should be forced to play a full season of Stratomatic, um, which would be easier now, right? And it doesn't have to be Strat. That's just kind of one of the ones right, everyone something. goes back to. Something. You yep. should be forced to do the simulations. I actually think the value, I love that story of your offensive coordinator friend. Yep. I think a lot of the value is just understanding probability. The probability comes into play. Um, understanding that uh, the odds of a 
an unlikely event occurring are probably lower than you think they are. The odds of a, a you know a highly probable event occurring are probably um, you know maybe uh, higher than you think they are, and and, and maybe not. It would probably depends a bit on the individual uh, on the uh, the individual person doing the thinking. But I think there's a lot of power in that. I think he, the Bill James quote was also like you'd stop bunting all the time if you did the simulation you'd be, eventually you just be, realize it didn't work i think right. it's hard for people when they're in the weeds of the games you're 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 in the forest and so you don't see the forest right and the game's always moving right and you're constantly thinking about the next thing i wonder how often especially college baseball coaches who are notorious for their bunting well deserved um I have been at so many college games. I'm like, how do you not know that was a bad play? I can see that's a bad play, but of course I'm not on the field, next to the field. And so I have the luxury of the extra thought and also the luxury of the top-down view that a coach maybe doesn't necessarily have. Some of them get it. Most of them don't. And we could probably talk all day about reasons why they're like that, but the truth, uh, I think the, the particular message is that when you're that close to the action, you probably don't have the luxury of time to think about each individual move and did that work and what, you know, how should I evaluate that outcome to determine whether my process was a good one. And just to end on a fun note, again, bringing this all back full circle, we're stuck in the pandemic. You're a board game buff. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people are playing board games to kill time. You just wrote a piece for Vulture on board games that can be found as apps, the best ones uh, that are out there, just to give that a plug. Is there a board game that isn't a baseball game? You're talking about you want to do things that aren't baseball. That would be good for someone who wants to simulate the strategic exercises that take place in baseball. So uh, you sent me this ahead of time so I can yep. think about it. And I, the one that popped right into my mind remains my answer. Is also, as it turns out, what I think is the best two-player game, purely two-player game I've ever played. It's called Jiper, J-A-I-P-U-R. It is also available as an app. The app is excellent. What The reason I think that applies is because it is a highly back-and-forth game where, much as you might in chess, uh, you have to think, if I do this, what will my opponent do next? And then what do I do? And then what does my opponent do? Now, in chess, you have to be able to envision the board and think many, many moves in the future, and it takes a lot of experience or, I think, a more expansive mind than clearly than I have because I'm not good at chess. But in Jiper, it's entirely with cards. You're simply trying to select, collect sets but there is very much a strategy in trying to set up moves that are several things down the road. If I do this, you do that. I do this, you do that. Oh, boom, I trapped you. It's simple to learn. The rule, the game plays fairly quickly, but you always have to be considering what's going to happen in the next few moves. I actually really enjoy the game. One, because just not a lot of two-player games are that interactive. Like I, I play games that I always describe as glorified solitaire. You're playing solitaire with friends. Well, it's fine. But really, two-player games should be me against you. We are do- I am doing this to you, and you are doing something <laughs> back to me. Right. That's what makes a good two-player game. And in Jiper, that's absolutely a thing. Resources are scarce. Certain cards are, are really scarce. We're, tr- we're trying to set each other up. It's almost like a little bit of a dance around a ring, you know, and all of a sudden we get too close, and boom, I get to throw the punch. That's how Jiper works. And I do think that applies to a lot of in-game tactics around baseball. It's, if I do this, what do you do next? That whole right. idea, well, I'm going to bunt these guys over to second and third. Well, I'm just going to walk the next guy. All right, well, I don't actually know who came out ahead in that exact exchange because it kind of depends on who's up next and what do you do with the pitcher. But that's what you want to be thinking about, right? If I do this, opposing coach does that, then what do I do? Well, I do this. Well, what will the opposing coach do? Well, he'll do that. 
that's kind of how Driper works for me. That's how all the best two-player games work, in my opinion. All right, I didn't ask you this ahead of time, but it just it triggered a thought as you were saying it. What major league manager would be good at that game? Oh, that's a good question. Because, like, who's really – well, Gabe Kapler is just – I know Gabe pretty well, just knowing how smart he is, and he's really competitive. I, I, I Like, I'd be a little nervous about playing <laughs> – playing him um also aj hinch not currently a major league manager i do think he'll right. get to become one again also i think terry francona is it, it remains somehow sort of weirdly underrated maybe going to cleveland um and having success there by the way which is he's in cleveland right cleveland it, it's just sort of less covered as a market right. he remains a really good tactical manager as well as i think a really good manager of people which doesn't necessarily matter in a board game but those are all folks who i think the way that they think in a baseball game would probably, once they caught it, you play Jiper a few times and then you'll suddenly figure out, oh, this is what I need to do. This is how I need to set you up. Once you figured that out, that's your te- that's your strategy now. And once they get that, they're guys who can sort of see the field a few, or in this case, the, the cards, uh, you know, a few rounds out and make sure that they're always setting you up. Not that they'll necessarily, it, the fun thing about Jiper too, there's some randomness, there's, it's a shuffled deck of cards. You could set it up as well as you want to, and sometimes the cards just don't agree. Well, that's kind of <laughs> like baseball, right? You exactly. we played that perfectly. We threw the right pitch in the right situation, and it didn't work. Well, that's yeah, that's that's sports ball. All right, last question for you: Is there anything you want to plug? Um, so you plug the book. I'll just yep. say it again: the Inside Game comes out on April twenty-first. You can pre-order it everywhere. I am sending people to bookshop.org because that site supports independent bookstores, and everybody really needs uh, every independent bookstore, uh, every independent business um, that's still trying to to operate in the shutdown. They could really use our help. Um, and also, just I've been at the Athletic now for a couple of months. Really, it's been a great experience. Uh, I've had a couple of recent columns there for subscribers that you know I think work are still of interest even during the shutdown, including the piece I just wrote uh, about four or five days ago. Uh, minor league contraction and realignment has been on the back burner because obviously we've got bigger things to deal with. That's still there though. And it will come back at some point and it may come back sort of fast. Once everything is back to semi-normal and we're playing games again, don't think major league baseball has forgotten about it. And I even wondered in the piece, will they try to use the fact that we're only going to play half a season, if that, to push through some early parts of the realignment. And I tried to lay out a couple of different pictures and also give my opinions. Here's what I would do if I could sort of play baseball God and move things around. How, what would I do uh, about that to address everyone's concerns without necessarily wiping out four different leagues in the low, low minors. All right. And one other thing, cause I forgot to ask it. Uh, when yeah. baseball does re- return uh, a minor league player to watch from the defensive side. I'll go with, uh, I, I know you've, I think you said you'd had Cabrian Hayes on yep. recently. I mean, he's one of the, to me, the two best defensive players in the Myers at every, any position are Cabrian Hayes, third baseman for the Pirates, Christian Pache, center fielder for Atlanta. If Atlanta didn't already have a great center fielder, <laughs> Pache would probably just yep. make the club. And actually, Evan White will make the club with Seattle. He's the best defensive first baseman. I know that sounds like not much, but he's actually really good. Those are three guys who probably, they're all minor leaguers right now. We'll all probably play in the major leagues whenever we do get major league games again and are all, you know, on the scouting scale, 70 or better defenders at their positions. Nice. We'll be keeping that eye out for them. We'll be keeping an eye out for the inside game, the new book from Keith Law. And this wraps up this episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. For Keith Law and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Please support people who need it any way you can during this tough time. 
We'll see you down the road. Check out our newest baseball book, The Fielding Bible, Volume 5, out March 1st. This book gives a comprehensive look at our new and improved defensive run save stat. It features essays on all 30 teams, research and studies on important topics, and stats and analysis you can't find anywhere else. That's Fielding Bible, Volume 5, available at actasports.com, that's A-C-T-A sports.com, or wherever you buy your books online. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.